This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by God Speaks, a participatory theology of biblical inspiration. I'm its author, Gabriel Gordon. I've written this book to look at biblical inspiration differently than many of us do, one which looks through the lens of the Jewish and Christian traditions to explore how a God who is uncontrolling love affects how we see what biblical inspiration is and what it is not. This is the first book of its kind, which explores the uncontrolling love of God theology of philosopher and theologian Thomas J. Ord and its implications for the nature of scripture. If that sounds like a book you'd like to read, go order a copy at your local bookstore or anywhere you buy your books. Hey, this is Derek Webb. You're listening to Second Cup with Keith, my favorite caffeinated theology podcast. Hello and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles. In today's episode, I wanted to talk to you about three lies that for the longest time I believed and... I do believe a lot of Christians also tend to believe these three lies, or at least three misconceptions. The first one, and this was a big pivotal thing for me in what I would call my deconstruction experience, was the idea that the gospel is all about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. Not only was this the way the gospel was communicated to me when I was around nine years old, it's the way I was sort of brought into the faith. And if you think about it, You may have been brought into the faith under those terms as well. In fact, typically the way the gospel gets communicated is something like, you know, raise your hand if you don't want to burn in hell forever. I see that hand. Repeat this prayer after me. And by the way, it's a prayer that doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Jesus never asked anybody to pray any kind of a prayer like this. Neither did any of the apostles, according to the book of Acts. And yet, this is sort of the formula and the entry point for many of us in the Christian faith. It is all about escaping hell or making sure you can go to heaven after you die. Now, we've already talked about this in a previous episode, but it's worth just repeating it again, just as a reminder, that the gospel is not about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. The gospel, as we've talked about before, the gospel is the good news, and it's what Jesus proclaims in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When he says things like repent, metanoia, which simply means to change your mind, doesn't have anything to do with feeling sorry for your sins. When he says metanoia, it means think different, change your way of thinking. And then he says something that would really make first century Jew stop and think and reconsider. It was a very bold and shocking statement. And his statement was this, the kingdom of God is here now. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. These are the things that Jesus is constantly proclaiming as the good news. In Mark 1.15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 12.28, The kingdom of God is upon you. And then Luke 17.21, Indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And as we've seen also after his crucifixion and resurrection in Acts chapter 1, It says that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and continually spoke about the kingdom of God. As we've also seen, this is what Paul spoke about as well. Paul also preached this same good news, this good news, this gospel of the kingdom and the idea that the kingdom of God is open, wide open right now for all of us. We don't have to wait until after we are dead to enter into this reality where we are in the presence of God. We are submitted to the rule and reign of God in our lives, and we're enjoying the good things and the blessings of everything that goes along with being fully 
in the presence of God forever and ever. That's the good news. That's what the gospel is really all about. So the gospel, just to make sure we're understanding it, it's not about saying a prayer so we can go to heaven when we die. Even if that's the way we have been told to understand the gospel. That's why I say it's a, a lie that a lot of Christians believe, because it that is not the gospel. It's not what Jesus says. It's not what we find in the gospels. And so it is good news, this idea that we don't have to wait till after we're dead to experience this phenomenal reality of the kingdom of God right here and right now. The second lie that Christians believe, and I find this one really confounding, is this idea that on the cross, the Father turned his face away from Jesus. Now, especially around Good Friday or Easter week, Christians quite often will repeat this idea, and you'll hear this almost guaranteed. You will hear something like this from the pulpit on a Sunday morning surrounding Good Friday or Easter Sunday. This idea that on the cross, all of the sins of the world were laid upon Jesus, and in that moment, For the first time ever, the Father turned his face away from the Son. There was a division, a separation in the Trinity, and the Father turned his face away from Jesus. And Jesus Jesus experienced in that moment not just the physical agony of the cross, but the spiritual agony of being separated from the Father for the first time because of your sins and my sins and the sins of the world being laid upon Jesus. Now, that sounds really dramatic, and it sounds, you know, it gets us. It's emotional. It just sort of adds to the suffering of Jesus, this additional layer of suffering that he went through, again, not just physically, but spiritually and even existentially. And the real problem with that teaching is that no matter how many times it's been repeated, there is not a single verse in the Bible anywhere, nowhere, that says anything like that. And I would challenge anyone who believes that to, you know, go look in your New Testament Bible, go look in your scriptures in the New Testament. Look for a verse that verbatim says that when all the sins of the world were laid upon Jesus, the Father turned his face away. Look for a verse that says that the only time that Jesus and the Father have ever been separated was when he was on the cross. Any of those kinds of things. Just go and look for a verse that actually teaches that specific idea. And I have, but I encourage you to do it yourself. And I think when you do, you'll find that I'm right, (laughs) that there really is not a single verse anywhere that teaches any of those specific ideas. So where do we get the idea from? Well, the only place that we really get this teaching from is an extrapolation of a sentence, a statement that Jesus makes from the cross. And it's one we've all heard before. It's where Jesus from the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Really from that single sentence, This Jesus crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all it takes. Bible teachers, pastors have woven together this story, this theory, which has now become 100% accepted fact that in that moment when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That what happened was something the scriptures never tell us, that what happened in that moment was the father turned away from Jesus And why? Well, because of all of our sins that were laid upon him. And in in that moment, Jesus experienced, for the first time ever, separation from the Father. Now, there's just a lot going on there from that little sentence, right? You don't really see any of these things. And understand, one of the reasons why this story, this lie, sort of gains traction is that it supports another idea that many Christians also believe. 
Secondarily, the idea that our sin causes the Father to turn away. The, the Father is disgusted by our sins. The Father is so holy he can't be in the presence of sin. That's going to lead us to our third lie coming up in a second. I'll go into, into detail with that a little bit more. But keep that in your mind. That That is something that I think is the reason why Christians want to believe that that's true. So what's really going on when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's found in Matthew and in Mark. Well, that statement is actually a quotation. Jesus is quoting the first line of a very famous psalm, or a song, if you will, that Jewish people would have known. It would be similar to, let's say, today, if we were having a conversation, and all of a sudden I paused and I said something like, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Now you know immediately, oh, he's quoting everybody's favorite hymn, Amazing Grace. And then if you took a few seconds, you could probably remember, you know, all the other verses, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, etc. All of those kind of flood into your mind because you know that hymn pretty well. And all I need to do is quote the first line and you kind of get what I'm doing and what I'm quoting. And so this Psalms 22 is what we call a messianic psalm. In this psalm, it's really fascinating. I encourage you to go and turn and look at Psalms 22, and you'll see the reason why it's called a messianic psalm, because it has not only that statement that Jesus says from the cross, but it has in verse 16 the, the phrase that they pierced my hands and my feet. And in verse 18, it says they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And so Jesus is quoting Psalms 22 from the cross because it's being fulfilled in that moment. And he wants to call attention to the fact to all of the people standing around him on the cross. Hey, what was spoken of in Psalms 22 is being fulfilled right now in your presence. They have pierced my hands and my feet, Psalms 22, 16. They are dividing my clothes among them. They're casting lots for my garment, Psalms 22, 18. By quoting the first line of that psalm, he's calling their attention to the fulfillment that's happening right in front of them. So now, how do we know that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That what's happening in that moment is that the Father has not hidden his face from them. How do we know that that's what happened? Well, again, Psalms 22 is a messianic psalm, and it's being fulfilled right there on the cross in that moment. And if we keep reading Psalms 22, we'll come to verse 24, where it says this, For God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. God has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help. So do you see it? Right there in Psalms 22, it tells us exactly what God is doing in response to the suffering of the Messiah as he's hanging on the cross. It says he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the Messiah. And it says specifically, God has not hidden his face from him, but instead has listened to his cry for help. And so you might wonder, well, okay, Keith, this is this is great. Thank you for clearing this up. It's good to know that this idea that the Father turned his face away from Jesus on the cross during the crucifixion isn't really something supported by the scriptures, but so what? Well, here's why I think it's very important for us to understand what's really going on in that moment on the cross. See, if God wouldn't turn away from his own son, even when all of the sins of the entire world are piled upon him, you know what that means? It means God won't turn away from your sinfulness either. God did not forsake Jesus, and that means God will not and would never forsake you. And in fact, doesn't Jesus actually tell us that? I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. 
And that leads us to our third lie that Christians believe, and it's this idea, which again is embedded in this myth that Jesus experienced separation from the Father on the cross. It's the idea that God is too holy to be in the presence of sin. And you hear this also taught quite often. It goes hand in hand with a pretty recent theory of the atonement called penal substitutionary atonement theory, which John Calvin came up with in the 1500s. But again, keep in mind that means for 1,500 years, Christians didn't think about God this way, didn't think about the atonement this way. But it's all again, we could boil it down to this assumption or this belief that according to the scriptures, God is too holy to look upon sin. Is that true? Not if we look at the scriptures. <laughs> That's not what it says. In fact, we see that God's eyes move to and fro over all the earth, searching the hearts and minds of his people. That's found in Second Chronicles 16.9, Job 31.4, Jeremiah 16.17, Zechariah 4.10, and many other places. So, no, it isn't supported, this idea that God's eyes are blind to those who are sinful because they're so hideous and disgusting he can't look at them or even be in their presence. That's not what Scripture says. In fact, in Hebrews 4.13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So let's just think about this for a second. What would happen if God wasn't able to look upon sin? Well, it would mean that looking at us would be pointless because all he could ever see was a world full of sinful people, which, by the way, is everyone. That doesn't make any sense, right? The doctrine that God is too holy to look upon sin is actually based really on, again, one single verse of Scripture in the Old Testament, and that's in a very obscure Old Testament book called Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, Habakkuk says this, speaking to God, he says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So that seems like a slam dunk. If we stopped reading right there, that seems like a really good proof text for the idea that God is too holy and too pure to look at evil and that God cannot be in the presence of sin. But just keep reading. And in that same chapter, you'll notice that later on, Habakkuk wraps this idea up by then asking God, so why do you? In other words, the original question is asked assumptively, but then the prophet reaches a point where he says, I'm confused, God. I thought your eyes were too pure to look on evil. I believed that you couldn't tolerate wrongdoing. And yet, in my experience, what I see is, God, that you actually do tolerate evil. You are not too pure to see these things. And so there is one other verse, Isaiah 59 in verse 2, that also at first seems to support this idea that God is too holy to look upon our sins. In Isaiah 59, 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Well, once again, wow, that really seems like a slam dunk, doesn't it? I guess we could just stop thinking and stop reading. But we probably should not stop reading, and we should probably not stop thinking. Let's keep reading. And in that same chapter, Isaiah 59, we'll come to verse 16 where it says, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. And then in verse 21, he also says, As for me, 
This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And so again, we have an initial statement that seems to say that our sins have separated us from God, that God has hidden his face from us because of our sins, and that he won't listen to us. But if we keep reading, we see that idea challenged. The idea is that no, God does look, and he does see, and he even intervenes for those who are sinful. And then in spite of their sinfulness, he commits and promises that his spirit will remain upon us and will not depart from us. So God does look, he does see, he does hear in spite of anything we do. Now, I have to also, at this point, remind everyone that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, according to Hebrews. And it says he was the only one, according to the Gospel of John, as we've seen already, the only one who has ever seen God at any time. And in fact, he came to reveal the Father to us. It's why Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, let's look at Jesus if we want to see what the Father is like when it comes to his relationship to people who are sinful. When we look at Jesus, do we see Jesus as God in the flesh, averting his gaze when he's surrounded by sinners? No. Do we see him avoiding sinners? No. In fact, those sinners are his closest friends. In fact, he spends so much time with them that it's the religious elite of the day criticize him for it. And this is why Jesus is called a friend of sinners. So is God really too holy to look on our sins? Absolutely not. God's posture towards you and I is not disgust. God is not repulsed by your sins. God loves you. God is love, according to 1 John. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. This is the dominant theme of the Gospels. For God so loved the world. And that's you. And the love of God according to Ephesians 3, is higher, wider, longer, and deeper than we can ever imagine, and that it even transcends knowledge. In Romans 8, it says that nothing will ever separate you from God's awesome love. Not the future, not the past, not even death will separate you from the love of God. And why? Well, because you were created in the image of God, and God is love. So you and I were created in the image of a God who is love, which means you are loved. And that's true of all of us. And so nothing will ever separate you from God's love. And that means you and I will never know what it's like to not be loved by God. And we'll never know what it's like to be separated from God's love because we're not separated from God's love. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5.19. And it tells us what really happens on the cross. Does the Father turn away from the Son? Absolutely not. In fact, what it says is, it says that for God was in Christ on the cross, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to himself. Here's how Jesus responds to our sin. And we see this over and over and over again in the Gospels. We see Jesus forgiving sins. And in fact, I don't even think you can find a place where anybody repents or confesses or asks Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Jesus just automatically says, your sins are forgiven you. It's almost the first thing out of his mouth anytime he meets someone who comes up to him. He says to them, your sins are forgiven. And then he asks, what would you have me do? So God 
forgives sin. God's reaction to our sin is to forgive us of it, that he doesn't count our sins against us, and he loves us. He restores us. He makes all things new. He has reconciled us to himself through Christ. That, again, is very, very good news. Jesus even goes as far as to correct this idea that God is too holy to look upon sin when he speaks to the Pharisees, and it's in his Sermon on the Mount, he makes this point about how we should be holy as God is holy. Many times we take this idea, again, our idea of holiness is very much like, frankly, a Pharisaical idea of the holiness of God. That's what the Pharisees believe. The Pharisees believe that God was so holy that he could not be around sinners and he couldn't be anywhere near those that were quote-unquote unclean, which is why they themselves separated themselves from the quote-unquote sinners of their day. Tax collectors, prostitutes, zealots, people that were sick because the assumption was if they were sick, it was because of some sin in their life. And this is why they're confused by Jesus. If Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah, why is he hanging around with these sinners? Jesus corrects this idea and he says, we should be holy as God is holy. But when he says that, it's right after he has spent a lot of time explaining in what way God is holy. Because right before that statement, he talks about how God brings rain on the just and on the unjust, how God loves sinners and the righteous equally the same. And then he says, after explaining, this is the way God is holy. God's holiness doesn't separate him from sinners. No, God's holiness causes him to draw nearer to them, to love them, bless them, do good to them, because God cares for them just as much as he does those who are quote-unquote righteous. And after Jesus corrects that misunderstanding of what the Father's holiness looks like, then and only then he explains that you and I should be holy the way God is holy. And how is God holy? By separating himself from quote-unquote sinners and not associating with people who are lower class or people that are sick or prostitutes and, you know, drunkards and things like that. Is that how God is holy? Absolutely not. Jesus corrects that. He says, that's not who God is. That's not what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. When we look at Jesus, what do we see him doing? Hanging out with those sinners. And so it's in that context that Jesus corrects our misunderstanding of what it means for God to be holy. And he says, this is the way God is holy. His holiness is expressed in his incredible love for everyone everywhere. And so in that way, be holy like God. That's how God is holy. And that's how we should practice holiness as well. Not by separating ourselves, not by treating others as if they're lower than us or we're better than them. No, not at all. God doesn't do that, and we shouldn't do that either. I hope now you can see the gospel through a better lens, that the gospel isn't about saying a prayer to go to heaven when we die. The gospel is something not for our death, it's for our life today, right now. That Jesus was not separated from the Father because of anybody's sins, and that means you're not either. (laughs) In fact, God's holiness is expressed in his absolute love and acceptance of everyone everywhere. I hope this is really helpful to understand these things, that we're not separated from God, that God has drawn near. In fact, the whole name of Jesus, right, Emmanuel, is God with us. We are no longer separated from God. In fact, we probably never were. 
Paul says we were separated from God in our minds, but that doesn't mean we were really separated from God. From God's side of things, God has always wanted to draw us nearer because he's our father and we're his children. And what he wants is to prepare a place that we can be with him forever and ever. And he's done that. He has already, again, made peace through Christ with us. He has already reconciled the entire world to himself, and that includes you. You are welcome in the presence of God, always, just the way any child would be welcome in the presence of a loving father. I hope this has been helpful. Thank you for listening. This has been Second Cup with Keith. I look forward to having another Second Cup with you again very, very soon. God bless.